Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Man, isn't it fun to baptize people? Always fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. While you're doing that, I'd like to just intro a bit. This is our second week in a four-week series here at the Vineyard called Bare Bones. And it's the reason we've sort of reconfigured the room and it's the reason we've unplugged from the sound system and thrown the rock band off the stage. What we're doing for the next couple weeks is we're investigating what it really means to be a Christian. If you were to take all the extraneous portions off of being a follower of Jesus, all the things that get attached to being a follower of Jesus that actually don't mean anything, if you were to take those things off and you were to get down to the substance of it, what would be left? And that's what we're looking at. And it's the reason we wanted to simplify things here, even on the worship side. Because here's the truth, church. We don't need a band to do worship. And we don't need a sound system. And we don't need lights. We don't need a fog machine. In fact, most of the church around the world this morning worship just like we did right here. I haven't been able to get away from the fact, or at least this idea, that while we've been singing for the last couple of weeks, I can't get away from this picture of the rest of the world. And, you know, I've, I've traveled all over South America. You know, I can't get away from this picture of, like, the, the vineyards in Peru. It's so much more like this. You know, if the church doesn't rise up and take it, there's just nothing, you know? It's awesome. So that's what we're getting down to. What is the essence of being a Christian? What's the essence? Last week, we discovered that the root of being a believer is the incomparable love of God. He just loves you. He just loves you so much, and it has nothing to do with your goodness or your badness, it has to do with his goodness. And his goodness is so overflowing that he just loves people. He loves the good people, and he loves the rotten people, and he loves them all the same. And that's what we found. At the end of the day, what are Christians? Christians are people who know they're beloved. That's it. And if you look right next to that, one of the things that you find when you run into men and women who love Jesus is you find that there are always people who trust him. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about trusting Jesus. And before we do that, and before we read the scripture this morning, I want to light the Christ candle. That our hearts and our minds might be illuminated. Perhaps for the first time, or maybe for the millionth time this morning. Why don't we just pray real quick? That'd be all right. Jesus, would you illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning? Amen. Amen. Before we get down into the scripture this morning, I want to lay out a couple things that I've found to be generally true of human beings. And I'll tell you right up front, it's a bit of a paradox. When it comes to talking about trusting in Jesus, the first thing I'd like to say is that... For the most part, human beings are believing creatures. Like our animal selves, if you got down to our most primitive parts, if you 
took us down to who we are at the core. Human beings, in our animal sense, are all believing creatures. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody believes in something. Everybody believes in something. Everybody believes in something. And some of what we've believed through history and some of what we believe now has been really helpful. And some of what we believed has been not so helpful. Some of it's been right. Some of it's been wrong. Some of it's been naive. Some of it's been superstitious. Some of it was real beneficial. Some of it was toxic. But the fact remains that human beings are trusting creatures. Our animal selves are believing selves. It's how we order the universe. And most of us have had those transcendent moments when we were acutely aware that there was more to life than what we could explain with mere language. I don't know about you, but how many of you perhaps went outside this week and looked up at the stars? Did anybody do a little stargazing this week? I did on accident like three times. And if not this week, then how many of you have been out and looked at the stars before and just gazing into the heavens at the innumerable stars looking at the Milky Way, like where I live out on Rochville Road. It's so dark out there that when there is no moon out, you can see the Milky Way and it looks like it goes over our house. How many of you have ever stood in the dark looking at the sky and realized There's more going on here than I can explain. And you became profoundly aware, not only that you were small, but that something was with you. Isn't that weird? Why? Well, we've been hardwired to be believers. We're all believers. Every single person. Now, what's interesting is this. What's interesting is that we've often been told that the world is becoming more atheistic as a culture. We've been told that The world is becoming more godless, and to a degree, that might be true. But some of the recent research, and by the way, by recent research, I mean like stuff that's come out in the last two months by the Pew people. You know the Pew who do all these, like, all this research, and they do all these surveys? Like, Pew has done this huge, huge bit of research on religion. And here's a couple things that they found. One will not be surprising. One might be mildly surprising. The thing that's not surprising is that people are leaving the church like crazy. Just done, right? And I can't entirely say that I don't understand why they're doing that. I'm a pastor and I understand why sometimes people would want to leave the church and never come back. But here's what's simultaneously super interesting. That while the world seems to be becoming more godless or atheistic, and while people seem to be leaving the church at really rapid pace and in really big numbers, the thing that's simultaneously happening is that people are having mystical, spiritual experiences. Even people who say they don't necessarily believe in God, over 60% say that within the last month they've had some sort of mystical supernatural spiritual experience of experiencing their smallness, yet somehow at the same time experiencing their witness. Does this make sense? Isn't that amazing? Why? It's simple. We're believing animals. That's who we are. In our core, in our DNA. You didn't have to be taught to be a believer. You just are. It's the reflex of the heart. It's instinctual. And then we get to the paradox of it. Because for all of our belief, and for all of our trust, and all of our faith, which, by the way, all of those are relational words, the strange thing is this, that we mostly, we mostly just trust in ourselves. 
We mostly trust in ourselves. We're believing creatures, but we're also timid, unbelieving creatures. Because if you believe, one of the things you'll learn in this world, if you believe and if you trust, you might end up believing or trusting in the wrong thing. And then if you end up believing or trusting in the wrong thing or the wrong person, you can get burned and then... And then you begin to recoil. Some of us in the room have endured pain that came from trusting the wrong person. Right? I mean, we have divorced people here. Some of us have been seared with the hot iron of believing the wrong ideas. And so we recoil back to ourselves. And for all the trust and for all of our belief, there's always this portion that we're holding back precisely because we're trusting in ourselves. Life is good, but it is not safe. It is dangerous, and you have to keep your head on a swivel, as the coaches say. Haven't you found that to be true? Yeah. That's the thing. And so, I want to turn to the scriptures this morning. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 31. Pretty famous piece of scripture. You'll recognize it as we get into it. Paul says this, He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everybody has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in previous times. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast that we have done anything to be accepted by God? Nope. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he also not the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or they are Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Did you pick up on a theme in those ten verses? A little refrain in there over and over again, wasn't there? If you read that passage slowly, if you take those ten verses in at a nice slow pace, if you underline things that seem important, one of the things that you'll notice right away is that in ten verses, five times... Five times in ten verses, Paul says that a person is made right with God by faith or belief. By faith or belief. Not doing good, 
not being super spiritual, not reading your Bible every single day, not keeping the law, which is the Old Testament way to being righteous. And by the way, the word righteous, that's just a famous and a big Bible word that really just means right relationships with God and with people. It's nothing more, nothing less. You don't become righteous by keeping the Old Testament law. You don't become righteous by sacrificing goats and lambs. And aren't you glad we don't do that? As a pastor, I just want to say, I'm personally really glad that I'm not responsible for that. You, you, you don't become righteous and you don't become right with God by being rich. You don't become righteous or right with God by being strong. And you don't become righteous by demonstrating supreme willpower. Anybody in the room have somebody, have a friend who, who has the ability to demonstrate supreme willpower? Yeah, I know a couple of dudes. Yeah. Yeah, they're always, they're always, they're always a little ahead of the game. And you know what? It might get you ahead of the game here, but it doesn't necessarily get you ahead in God's kingdom. A couple things. The only thing that does is faith, or what Paul says is belief. And I just want to tell you right up front that those words faith and belief, they are good words. They are Pauline words. Those are Bible words. But those words a lot of times have baggage attached to them that Paul and none of the writers in the Bible would have attached to them, which is why I like the word trust. I like the word trust. Anytime you read, especially in Paul, the word believe or faith, you can almost always put the word trust in there because that's what it's really trying to get at. We're not just believing intellectual arguments. We're not just believing systems. We're believing a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. Belief is a person. Jesus Christ. A couple things here. The world tends to organize in ways that inevitably lead to hierarchies. Have you noticed that? The world tends to organize in ways that tend to lead to hierarchies, meaning some people are winning and some people are losing. And so the best are always the smartest, uh, the strongest. The best are always the most beautiful. The best are always the most successful, the most articulate, the most organized, the leaders who can really gather, uh, the rich, the influential, the skinny, or the driven. But God's kingdom doesn't work that way at all. It's completely wide open. It's completely available to the weak, the ugly, the loser, the rambler, the messy, the failure, the poor, the overlooked, the overweight, and the uninterested. You know why? Because it isn't based upon any of those things. God's kingdom is based upon simple trust in His Son. And you can be weak. You can be ugly. You can be a rambler. You can be a loser. You can be messy. You can be a failure. You can be poor. You can be overlooked. You can be overweight. You can be uninterested. And still have simple trust in Jesus that makes you a winner in His kingdom. It's just good news. It's just good news. See, the old maxim is eternally true. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. God's kingdom, wide open. You see, being righteous or being right with God is totally open to those who are willing to trust in Jesus. That's it. That's it. And this kind of trust, this kind of trust has a hallmark of a couple things. And, and the first is this, that it's humble. Being a trusting person always connects inside of it humility. Humility always goes with being a trusting person. Doesn't it make sense though? 
If we're trusting in Jesus, we're simultaneously acknowledging that we're not able to do it for ourselves. Trusting in Jesus is fundamentally about being honest that we're not able to achieve what we really need on our own. And this kind of trust openly says, I need help. I'm not that strong. I'm not that smart. There are things about life that I can't manage. And I need somebody to come alongside. Tell you a little story. Six or eight months ago, I was at the gym. I like to go to the gym. You could probably tell because my arms are huge. (laughs) I was one of those people who was given the DNA that no matter what happens and no matter how hard you go to the gym, nothing really changes. Anyway, I was at the gym. I decided I was going to bench press. I decided I was really going to go for it. I put a whole 165 pounds on them. This was going to be my best. I lifted that bar off of the rack. I take it down. I push it up. And as soon as I get it up, I think, that felt pretty good. I'm going to do it again. I bring it down, and I push it up, and I get a pound. Right here. And if you've ever been to the gym, you know what I'm talking about. It's, you twitch in ways that your nervous system has no capacity to control, diminish. I arched my back. I made noises. And I try not to be that guy in the gym who makes noises. But I was making noises. My animal self kicked in. (laughs) You know? And I couldn't get it any further. And it came back on me. Now I'm in the gym and I'm trapped. (laughs) And no one's around. So I yelled. (laughs) Hey! Because I was fundamentally opposed to doing, you know, the drop of shame. You know, just... Hey! And then out of the little plyometric room, like where people jump and and do stretches that they don't want other people to see, this guy came out. He's like, oh my gosh. And he comes over and he gets behind me and we push that thing up. And he says, let's, let's do it one more time. And we did another, and we set it back. That's being a Christian. That's being a Christian. It's the humility. It's the humility that comes. It's the humility that comes when you realize there are things in life that you, you literally can't move anymore, and you need somebody to help you. And if you let out a little cry, even if it's a tiny little cry, Jesus walks out of the plyometric room and he he grabs the bar and he lifts it off of you. That's what he does. Can I tell you something even funnier? And it makes this metaphor work even a little further. Me and that guy at the gym, we're like bros now. (laughs) 
right? Like, I trust that guy. I totally trust that guy. And in fact, if I'm going to bench press very heavy, I don't even bench press unless that guy's there. I always ask him. I'm like, hey, can you? And he's like, oh, of course. Can, yeah. I totally trust him. I totally trust him. That's what it means to trust Jesus. It's the humility that says, you know what? There's just some things I can't move. There's some things that like, you know what? I, I could move some things and then there's this other thing. I just, I just can't move it. Not only that, but it feels like it's going to come onto my throat and choke me out. And secondly, trusting Jesus is always relational. Paul loves the words believe and he loves the words faith. But the substance of what those words are always pointing to is trust. See, there's always a relational component to trust. It isn't just knowing something in the abstract. And haven't you ever heard like salvation talks where it's just like... Some preacher or some smart dude or smart woman is talking about salvation, but it's just, it's so abstract. It's as though, like, you know, A plus B equals C. Uh, It's almost as though, uh, or maybe you've heard, like, the legal talk as though you got acquitted by some, like, courtroom technicality. And I just want to say that's all hogwash. At the end of the day, it's relational. It's the invisible space that exists between two friends. It's, it's, the, it's the interior thing that exists between two people who know and love one another. It's the trust that gets built up because you realize somebody's really, really good. It's not legal technicalities. It's not like God bought himself off and then let some people go free. That's hog. Wash. It is that God is supremely kind. He is gracious and compassionate and is always willing to go first and do the things we cannot do with us. It's submitting to a better story, I think. I'll tell you another embarrassing story. The theme of this Sunday morning is Pastor Adam is an idiot. Trust. Uh, Many of you know that last November I went hunting in Montana. Western Montana, not out in the flat part, like in the really big mountains part where all the grizzly bears and the cougars are. And on the very first day we were there, we, my father-in-law and I, we had gotten up super early here. We had flown to Montana and because we're flying west the time works in our favor and we get there a little earlier than we even thought we were going to and the next thing you know we're at my friend's house and he says to us hey would y'all like to go on an afternoon hunt maybe just a little quick one maybe right here close to the house I'm like sure yes let me grab my gun change my clothes put on my thermals put on another set of thermals put on my hunting gear grab my gun and I'm ready to go and we were out the door and we are in the woods at 345 and John says we're just going to hunt this little spot over here if you could only see what the little spot over here is. It's the most ironic statement that I've encountered in the last year. Anyway, John says, Adam, why don't we do this? Why don't you kind of go up to the right here? There's a logging road that you'll hit about a half mile down. Take it to the top. Ray, why don't you go up the middle? And I'm just going to come around the left. I'll meet you boys at the top. Then we'll walk back together. It'll be fun. Great. What could go wrong? I take out to the right. I find that logging road. Not only did I find the logging road, but there's elk poop everywhere. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I'm walking up this path, and pretty soon it's smelling musky. And by that, I mean like animals, like animals you'd want to shoot and eat. I'm feeling more encouraged. 
And then eventually I get to the top of this mountain. And I'm not talking little Kentucky mountain. I'm talking wild Montana mountain. And I look around and there is no orange anywhere. I don't see Ray and I don't see John. It's just me. And I think, well, you know, here I am. I'll just walk this road out. Maybe they're a little further down. I walk the road out. They're not there. I walk further. They're not there. I walk further. They're not there. And then all of a sudden it occurs to me, you know what? It's getting dusky. I need to get back to the truck. And it went from dusky to pitch black dark this quick. And because we had kind of just thrown our things together that afternoon, I did not have my flashlight. I did not have a map. I did not have a compass. My cell phone had 8%. And it was dark. Fifteen minutes later, I was beyond lost. And by beyond lost, I mean this. I know that over there, somewhere, is our truck. I know that I can't go behind me. That will take me further away from our truck. But I don't really know where that is. And to make matters worse, I cannot find the path that gets me off of this mountain. And it is pitch black. And I'm in big woods where the grizzlies are. And where the cougars are. And let me tell you something about cougars in Montana. They never come and get you in a way that you know it. Cougars hunt you and then they bite you in the throat and you're dead before you realize you are awake. (laughs) At least that's what I was playing in my mind. (laughs) I'm like, this is great. It's pitch black, big woods. I... So I just start trucking off of this mountain, right? I'm like, I don't need a path. I'm just w- I'm walking off of this mountain. And then about 20 minutes after just trucking through big, big woods, I realized, I, what am I doing? And I kept saying to myself under my breath, how is this happening to me? How is this happening to me? I can't believe this. And eventually I keep walking because I know generally, like somewhere out in front of me, this is where I need to get. I just kept walking. And it was so dark that I ran into a barbed wire fence and I didn't know it. Boom. And then I'm like, okay. We came in on a barbed wire fence. This is good. But it was so dark, couldn't see anything. So I grabbed the top strand of that barbed wire with my right hand. I put my gun in my left hand and I took off walking like this. (laughs) For a long time. A long time. And then eventually I find, I see this little light over in the distance, but the light is on the wrong side of the fence. And so I stand there and I think, am I going to keep going with this fence or am I going to go with that light? So I jumped the fence (laughs) and I went to the light. And when I got to the light, there was a house with a little barn and I could see somebody inside because there were two lights on. And I think, great. I'm standing in a man's backyard in Montana. He doesn't know I'm here. I have a gun. And I need him. So I walked to the little, he had like a little courtyard. And I decided it would be best for me to lay my gun down. I laid my gun down. And I went to his front door. And I knocked. And he came out. And he wasn't scared. Which was great. And I told him, I really need your help. I'm lost. Instantly he says to me, come inside and use my phone. Instantly. Which was great, except I didn't know John's phone number. (laughs) 
So I stood by his wood fire and I warmed up a little bit and I said, hey, this is the road I know I need to get back on. And he says, you know, we're only like a mile, mile and a half. I said, well, could you give me a ride? He said, sure, jump in my truck. I said, sure, jump in my truck. And sure enough, we got in his truck and we hadn't even gone a quarter of a mile. And then there's the truck where we drove in. Right, I, I was so close, but so totally turned around. And I just, I just needed somebody. That, that's, that's being a Christian. That, that's, that's, just, that's trusting Jesus. You're like totally alone and lost in the woods. You see a light, you go to it, and you have to do the calculus. Would I rather stay alone in these woods with my one pro bar or trust this guy in that house? That's what I did. I trusted the guy in the house more than my own survival capabilities. That's trusting Jesus. It's humble and it's always relational. It's always, it's always relational. It's always, do I believe there's some goodness in this person that's going to get me out of my jam? And then some people, some people tend to reject faith or belief or trusting God because, because it's not scientifically verifiable. And I know we've got some people like this in the room. I know we had some here earlier, and I really do understand that. They, they have trouble with the concept of trusting somebody you can't see. After all, where is God? I don't see Him. But I would like to say here that dividing the world into that kind of separation is mostly unhelpful. It's unhelpful because God is not opposed to science. It's just that the scientific method and the kind of faith and trust we're talking about here, these are two different ways of knowing. They give you two different kinds of results. And so the point is not to approach God with a scientific method. The point is to begin to use your truster towards somebody who is ultimately good. And this is what Christians do. This is what Christians do. Without creating an either-or scenario, we just trust that Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection means life forever for me as well. And we we trust that when God looks at faith, he, He sees Jesus. And we trust that our sin is not the deciding factor in what your life is or what your life will be. And we really need to grab a hold of that. We are oftentimes way more concerned about sin than God is. It's not as though it's not a big deal. It did cost Jesus his life. But let me just tell you, the grace of God is so much bigger than sin has ever been. God is not freaking out. He wasn't wringing his hands in heaven. He never beat it up with sweat over your issues or my issues. And when you begin to just trust that, remarkable things happen. And let me just talk to you for a moment about sin. I would like to say here as well, uh, I totally believe in sin. Uh, I am not that postmodern yet. I am totally postmodern, but I am not so postmodern that I do not believe in sin. If you look around at your own life, if you look around at the world, how many of you realize that sin is doing a pretty good job? Yeah, sin's doing a pretty good job. And so you might ask yourself, well, well, what are we talking about when we're talking about sin? Let's get down to the roots here. Well, the Bible talks about sin several different ways. Uh, maybe you've heard it explained like this. Uh, the Bible talks about sin as missing the mark, right? You know, you tried to shoot and you just you missed the mark. That's somewhat helpful. Um, I really like what Richard Rohr has to say about sin. I think this brings it back into our field of view a little bit be- better. Richard Rohr says that sin is what doesn't work. Sin is that thing which doesn't work. So, so to reframe it here just for a second, like for instance, adultery is a bad thing. 
Adultery is a bad thing. It is sinful, not because God doesn't want us to be as sexually fulfilled as possible. It is sinful because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It will ruin your life. It breaks your wife's heart. It jacks your kids up. They have to go to therapy because dad walked out on my... You know what I mean? Isn't that right? Sin is what doesn't work. And then if we were to bring it back to the Bible again, I just think that Genesis shows us in such a really great way what sin is. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3, that's the whole Adam and Eve thing. I think most of us remember that. God says, you know what, hey, there's a couple trees here. You can have all the trees in the garden, but there's this one I want you to stay away from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve goes to the tree along with Adam, and the serpent says to her, hey, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Let me just tell you something. That's not really what he means. The reason he's saying that is he doesn't want you to eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, then you'll be like him. Isn't that what the story is? And then Eve takes it and she eats, right? So what, what's the real picture that Genesis is painting for us in terms of sin? Well, it's this. Sin is, sin is trying to be like God while simultaneously avoiding him. Think about your own life. Isn't that basically what most of us have tried to do? See, in the garden, in the garden, the center of the garden was always God and his goodness. But when Adam and Eve took the fruit, what they really were doing is they were saying, well, you know what? I'd like to be like God. I'd like to be the center of the garden. I'd like everything to come into my orbit. And I would like to grab hold of what we might call the good life. And I'd like to do that in such a way as to simultaneously avoid the person who is ultimately good. Think about your own life. Isn't that kind of the way it works? How many in the room have ever tried to lay hold of what you thought was the good life while simultaneously avoiding God? I've done it. I think I did it this week. (laughs) Hopefully, I won't do it anymore, but I'm pretty sure that next week I may have the same issue of oftentimes wanting to live life while simultaneously avoiding God. And what does the Genesis story show us in a bigger picture? You can't avoid God. <laughs> After you eat the fruit, God comes walking around. He's like, well, hey, what's up, y'all? Why, why are y'all hiding? Why are y'all hiding? Yeah, that's what sin is. It's trying to lay hold of the good life. Even trying to do good things while avoiding God, it'll lead you nowhere. It'll, be, it'll become about your control. You'll have to manipulate people. You'll have to do things and go places you never thought you'd have to do or go. That's what sin is, and it is a wreck. And so we need Jesus, and so God sends Jesus to be our righteousness, and he proves it by dying on the cross. It wasn't so much that God killed Jesus as it was that sinful humanity killed Jesus. God finally shows up in human flesh, and when he does, we killed him. See, that's, the why the, that's why the gospel story of Jesus is so sad. Jesus shows up. He finally shows up. Our hearts, everything that we've been longing for, finally comes in human flesh. And when he does, we, we killed him. But the gospel is this. God raised him up. And this works for me on two different levels. This is specifically why I personally believe in Jesus. This is why I trust him. Here's why. Because when we killed Jesus... When we nailed him on the cross, Jesus was simultaneously, with nails in his hands and in his feet, crown on his head, spear in his side, 
blood coming out of his body. In that very moment, Jesus looks at the very people who put him there and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And how many of you understand when somebody is that good, it wins my heart. See, Jesus didn't need time to process what was going on in his life in order to forgive. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking time to process things in order to forgive. I think that's the way it normally works for a lot of us. Forgiveness can be a process. But Jesus needed no process. In the moment of being murdered, in the moment of being innocent and being killed, in the moment of being stricken with pain and the sin of the world, Jesus takes no time to process. And from that place, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. That kind of compassion, that kind of mercy, that kind of forgiveness on the front end, man, that wins my heart. I just say, you know what? There's nobody in the world that's better than that. I trust that guy. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in that guy, but I trust that story. And then secondly, God vindicates him by raising him up. It wasn't just that he died. Paul says in first, first Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus is still dead, we're screwed. That's my version, but that is what it says. You can read it. It's that God vindicated him by raising him up. And the reason this is important is this, because Jesus does always, he always does the opposite of what you and I would do. Now, how many of you understand that if you got murdered by your best friends, how many of you understand that if in your time of need, your best friends left you and you get nailed to a tree and you get hung up naked in front of your mom, which I, that's one of the details that's just the worst. It's not just that he got nailed to a tree, it's that Jesus had to be naked in front of his mom. How many of you understand that if your friends leave you, you get nailed to a tree, spear in the side, crown on the head, naked in front of your mom, and you die? And how many of you understand that if after that, by some mystical power, God raises you up and you're actually alive, how many of you understand that the thing you wouldn't do is what Jesus does? What you and I would do is we would go knock on the door. And when Peter comes out, We'd be standing there with an AK-47, and we'd say, I'm back. We would mow everyone down. Right? Like, if you got vindicated like that, if everyone screwed you over, and I mean everyone, and then you got raised back up, how many of you wouldn't want to go in and give them a little of comeuppance? Right? Hey, how you hate me now? It's going to be awesome on the audio archive. <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus shows up after he's been raised. And he's like, hey, you guys want to be on my team again? I'm thinking of getting the boys back together. Man, I'm thinking of hooping. I'm thinking we're going to do it again. You guys want to come with me? Hey, Peter, I know that you were like the guy who like threw me under the bus three times. But do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Peter, you know it. Yes, I do, Jesus. You want to be on my team? No, who in the world would do that? This is why I trust Jesus, because nobody's so good. Who's better than that? If somebody in this room can tell me a better story than the Jesus who forgives people up front, before he's dead, while he's on the cross, and the Jesus who includes all the runaway people who left his team after he's been raised from the dead. If you can come up with a better story than that, then I'll give you the $100 bill that's in my pocket right now. I trust that guy. 
I trust that that's the best story in the universe. That all the other stories, no matter how they good, are just pale comparisons. They're imitations, foreshadows of that true story. That there's not a truer story. And that God's love says this. That in your worst moment, just like we read last week, while we were still sinners, before we did anything good, Jesus died for us for the love of God. I just trust that narrative. I don't think there's anything better. I don't think it's because you were good. I don't think it's because you were smart or I was awesome. I think it's because he's kind and he's good. And that just wins my heart. Are you kidding me? Tell me something better than that. And if you trust Jesus, if you trust Jesus, who is by far the best person that I've ever read about in the universe, if you trust Jesus, God says, I'll take that and call you righteous. I'll take it. That's enough for me. You see, I still remember I still remember sitting with the preacher at our kitchen table. I was 13. My sister was 11. And uh, we grew up in a Christian home. And I honestly, I don't have really any memories of not knowing God. I have no memory of not knowing God. It, 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 God was just such a part of our life. Just such a part of our life. Uh, there's zero... Super, you know, like, I didn't know God, now I know God. Uh, so it was just, God was always that presence that was in our home. Either either by tangible presence or just the, the story that kind of held all the other stories together. But I remember preacher came over when I was 13. My sister was 11. And he read to us a couple passages out of the scripture. And he told us that everybody in the world was a sinner and we needed Jesus. And I don't know why. It was so weird. And it was so great. But in that moment, for the first time in my entire life, I realized I needed help. And not only did I realize I need help, but I realized that the only person who could help me was Jesus. And not only did I realize that the only person who could help me was Jesus, but I realized I'd hit the jackpot because he's the guy who forgives people up front. And when he comes back to life, he doesn't shoot them like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He invites them onto his team. That I'd hit the jackpot. That the one person who could have held me accountable and thrown me into a fire didn't and doesn't. It's wonderful. What does it mean to be a Christian? What's the bare bones? What's the essence? What's the element of really following Jesus? It's trusting Him. You trust Him. And God calls it good. God calls it good. You trust Him like you would a friend. You trust that story. And then after you begin to trust Jesus with this really big stuff, like the biggest parts of your life, then Jesus does what Jesus does, and Jesus begins to meddle. When you begin to trust Jesus with some of these other things, Jesus always comes back over to some of these things. Some of us grew up in some of us grew up in traditions that made a big deal about the afterlife and so we trusted Jesus with heaven and hell and then one of the things you discover is that Jesus wants to talk to you about your present life. <laughs> the same faith that's active in trusting Jesus for the afterlife is the very same faith that Jesus will turn back on you and call out for trust in this present life. And so Jesus begins to meddle and one of the things you find is that you can't just trust Jesus in one little thing, but that he begins to come on to all these other things. And so Jesus will ask for trust with our money because, because Christians are generous. And why are Christians generous? Because God's generous. And then, and then Jesus will ask you to trust him with your relationships 
Jesus will ask you to forgive people who have been really bad to you. And Jesus will, Jesus will, ask, for, Jesus will ask you to just let them off the emotional hook. Just let them go. Jesus, and why will Jesus do that? Because he forgave you. And, and then, Jesus, then Jesus will begin to say, well, why don't, you go, why don't you go and hang out with these other people who don't look like you? who have maybe a different skin color or come from a different tradition than you. And you're like, I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. And Jesus is like, no, I, I really would prefer that. And then Jesus begins to bring up all the ways in which we've tried to avoid him. And we just can't. Jesus will begin to ask for trust in other areas. Jesus will always begin to bring this stuff that's so up here down to right here every time. And pretty soon we're trusting Jesus in things we didn't know we were trusting Jesus for. Trusting Jesus at our jobs. Some of us hate our jobs, and God's not going to let us go until we learn how to trust Him at our job and to love and, and to love and honor the boss and the employees that we're with right now. See, oftentimes the problem isn't your boss, and oftentimes the problem isn't your job. The problem is you. And Jesus is like, why don't you know what? what the question we sometimes have to ask is this What would Jesus. What would Jesus be like if he worked at this place? <laughs> Jesus would be kicking butt. That's what he'd be doing. He'd show up early, stay a little late, do a little more. Even if the boss was terrible. Remember, he's the guy who forgives up front. What? Then Jesus begins to ask for you to trust him with your career. Some of us have hopes and dreams. Some of us have hopes and dreams, and we want to do this, and we want to do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm kind of into some of those, and I'd like to alter some of those other ones. And that makes us really nervous. That makes us really nervous because we're still bought into the hierarchy narrative that this world has given to us, that you're not really, really okay unless you're rich, unless you're well cared for, and unless everything's perfectly safe. And Jesus is like, you know what? You may not be super rich for the next 30 years. I've got this other plan for you. And it may not have that involved in it. It may be something else. And so we have to trust Jesus with a new dream. Like we're into dreams here. Uh, one of the things that God's going to do with us in the next four or five years is learn how to love his dream. Which is oftentimes profoundly different than our dream. You know, Learning how to, to love Jesus with a different dream. Maybe go someplace new. Be someplace new. Or maybe it's stay. Like you just you stay. Right when you were wanting to fly, you stay. Because Jesus is like, you know, I'm, I'm here. We end up trusting Jesus in so many ways. Being a believer is not believing in Jesus one time. It's believing in him a billion times. Can I tell you something? I've been saved like 5,000 times so far. Yeah. Getting, getting saved is not a one-time event. It's like, it's like a million times. Because what you end up doing is you end up discovering there's all these little bits and pieces of my life that I've been shielding from Jesus. I mean, he owns it. He's already taken lordship over it, but I haven't given it away. And then he wins me over, and he wins me over. And the more I trust him, the more I realize he's better than I thought. And he wins me over, and he wins me over, and he wins me over. And when I first, when I first met Jesus, I just, I just trusted him because I realized that I needed somebody to help me with my sins, my capital S sins. And I didn't realize that what I really needed help with was being generous and being a forgiver. And when I started learning how to be generous and be a forgiver, how many of you understand I'm getting saved again and again? Because salvation isn't just not going to hell. Salvation is... The quality of God's life, the presence of the age of the future coming into the present, establishing God's goodness for all of us. Come on with that. It's a bigger story. 
And some of us hear this kind of talk and we think, well, I don't know. You know, what about, what if I'm weak? Sometimes I don't have much faith. Or sometimes I do a pretty terrible job trusting. I don't know about you. Sometimes I don't have a lot of faith. Sometimes I'm, feels like I'm low. Here's the good news. The good news is that God is so kind and he is so good that even when you have no faith, he'll take what you don't have and put it in your account. See, here's the thing. It was never your faith that saved you anyway. I mean, how egomaniacal can we believe? It was never your faith that saved you. It is always Jesus. See, here's the crazy thing. The world stands forgiven right now. Most of the world doesn't know that, but they stand forgiven right now. Jesus did not die for some people. He died for everybody. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The world stands forgiven right now. It was never your faith that saved you. Faith is the word we use to express waking up to God's real reality, which is you are a beloved son and daughter. You are so forgiven right now. If faith, if, if, if you being saved or me being saved depends on the strength of our faith, let me just tell you right now, we are screwed. But if it depends on the kindness of God, that even when you are weak, even when you are unfaithful, even when you have nothing to offer, even when you go through protracted seasons of doubt, and by the way, there's a good chance you might, the good news is this, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one who forgives people up front, and when he comes back, he doesn't kick them off his team. I had a year and a half where I had probably more doubts than I had faith. And here's what's crazy. I was preaching to y'all every single Sunday. And people were getting saved and people were getting healed and people were getting delivered. And there's all this life of God. And on the inside, I feel like I'm dying. I had nothing. If you were to ask me, what do you believe during those moments? I would tell you the only thing I know is that God is good. I know nothing else. I don't even know how I know that God is good. I'm just hanging on to this thread that God is good. And it was enough. You don't have to have much in the tank. In fact, the good news is, is that Jesus is the tank. He is giving us what we need. He is embracing us. And even when you're at the bottom of the barrel, He's always there. That's the story of the resurrection. It's that God's hanging out in the dark. God's best work is in the dark. God's best work is in the closet. God's best work is in the death. God's best work is in the darkness, underneath, buried, covered up by the soil. Every place where you feel like we're dead, everything you feel like you're dying, is a place where God is bringing his resurrection life. So why not begin to trust that? Why not begin to trust that? Is there anybody here who's never trusted Jesus before? Like you've been hanging out with us maybe a little bit, but you've never trusted Jesus before. If that's you, you just want to put your hand up. Anybody here need to just trust Jesus for the first time? Like maybe you've started to, but you've never really said that out loud or to anybody and you need to. Anybody here need to trust Jesus for the first time? Just put your hand up. I know it's awkward and we're all looking at each other, but family's awkward. I don't, I don't, know, what, I don't know what else to do. Anybody here need to do that? 
Anybody realize, that, oh my gosh, I got, a, I got a bar on my chest that isn't going to come up and it's about to roll onto my throat. I need somebody to come save me. Anybody? Okay. Why don't we do this? Why don't we stand up? And if I could have the ministry team go over to the back table there. How many of us have things in our lives that we know that Jesus is asking us to trust him with? Brand new. Yeah, that's me. I got this one thing I'm trying to trust Jesus with. It's driving me nuts. Let's do this. Let's hold our hands out like this. This will be two things. This is just a sign that we're open. It's good to have our bodies connected to our hearts. We're just, this is just a way of saying, God, I'm open. Rather than, God, I'm closed. God, I'm open. And secondly, if you know there's something in your life that you need to trust Jesus with, why don't you just put it there? And yes, I am that medieval. I believe we can do that. We can put stuff in our empty hands. God, we just, we give you our life. God, we say that we are open, and we say that we have some stuff we probably need to trust you with. Maybe some people, maybe a job. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a career decision. Maybe it's where we're going to live, who we're going to love. We just give that to you. And God, we ask that the reality of your kingdom... God, we ask that that trust that got us going with you. God, we ask that that faith that we first put in you, that God, it would come back to us and that we would begin to trust you in even these things. God, and especially for people who are dealing with really difficult things, I ask for grace to trust you. God, I ask that you would raise up here in this church a community of true faith. A community of, of living trust where trust and faith in the Son of God is not just this little thing that we do and get baptized one time. But God, it is this living hope that we carry with us that makes us different. It puts the, the aromas of Christ all over us. And everywhere we go, there's this sense of, wow, there's, there's some forgiving and merciful people. God, we just want to be trusters like that. We give you our lives. In the name of Jesus, who is not vindictive, or coercive, or a bully, but is kind and merciful and gentle. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, we've got like a big team back here. They would love to pray for you if you're sick in your body, or you just are having a hard time in life, or you know you need help trusting in something. Go and get some prayer for them. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug. The Mass is ended. Go in peace. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.